Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again this week by Patty Bianco and Alec Bianco. How are y'all doing today? I'm great. It's cold. (laughs) Yeah, it's getting chilly. Uh, Well, before we get into today's text, I just want to uh, give a quick word about um, the Cersei Institute, who uh, is the host of this podcast, obviously, we're on the Cersei Podcast Network. You know, one area that Cersei focuses on is the meeting place of three things, uh, three things that the modern school finds distracting. Um, That's Christ, the actual child in front of them, and the child's mother. So if you share Cersei's dream of a world that's permeated by schools and homes that share a focus uh, on those three things, Um, if you dream about Christian classical education informed and supported by contemplation on what Christ offers the educator, on what mother and father contributes to learning and on what we owe the child for the 13 years we demand of him or her. And if you dream of an education in which Christ and his and all mothers and the child are not problems that distract from our urgent and pressing labors, but rather the trifold reason for the act of teaching, I hope you'll please consider supporting Cersei Institute, um, especially during this time of year, uh, during this giving time of year in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, Cersei commits itself to faithful stewardship of everything you delegate to their care. And, and really the, the donations are things that help fund things like these podcasts, which, which are offered for free uh, to help the educator, whether they're in the home or the school. So if you can donate, please visit CerseiInstitute.org backslash donate, um, find out more about what's going on at Cersei, everything that's, uh, coming up in the new year and, and contribute there. Uh, we are returning to Herodotus, book two. Uh, we're in our second section here. Uh, book two is on the Egyptians. Um, so we are going to jump right in where we left off, which is around 2.59, I think. And Alec is going to give us a little summary this time. Yeah. So coming off the um, last week's reading, Herodotus gives us sort of a, a couple pages talking about the festivals and and rites of the Egyptians, some of their religious practices, how clean they are, how scrupulous they are with their religious activities, and then into their treatment of animals, which is kind of interesting. He spends a long time talking about how much the Egyptians, what kind of respect they had for animals and which ones were considered sacred uh, in their in their culture. And then after that, he talks a little bit more about the landscape, the Nile, the flooding, and the animals that kind of live there and cohabit- cohabitate with the people. And then he talks about some of the history of the Egyptian kings, mentions the very first king, Min, and then a list of 330 of which he says none of them accomplished anything except for one story of one woman. We can talk about what she was famous for. (laughs) And then he starts talking about, I think, some of the more recent kings and what they accomplished. So there's a couple of them who built some pretty impressive things and conquered a lot of land. And that leads him into talking about right sort of the end of our reading uh last couple pages is sort of a 
Herodotus's version of the Battle of Troy, which is also very, very interesting. And so we get a different account for Paris and Helen, uh, Alexandros and Helen, and how that was a that how that all went down. And I think that's pretty much the whole summary of what we read today. So, all right, thanks. Yeah, I want to, um, you know, get into, I want to get into the to the Helen of Troy stuff, but I want to kind of want to save that for to to we get there. Um, let's let's drop back into some of the, you know you we're talking about religious practices in the beginning, which is kind of where we left off. Him, he was launching into that last time. Um, there were several interesting things in there. Um, but, uh, one that jumped out to me was how, like that they, you can tell which ones at the, um, which ones are the fake Egyptians because they're like mutilating themselves in a different way than everybody else. Um, the, the Carians <laughs> who could cut their faces during the same celebration, but some interesting distinctions, I think for, uh, for the Egyptians, like we talked about this a little bit last time, but where they kind of differ from maybe the, not only the Greeks, but other kind of Mediterranean pagan cultures, um, even though he's attributing a lot of the worship that they, that the Hellenes do to originating with with the Egyptians, the types for the same gods with different names. So, any like unique things about the Egyptian religious practices jump out to either of you? I don't know if it was just me, but we were making that parallel to the Mississippi River last oh, yeah. time, yeah, and the Nile, and then it talks about them getting in their barge and going down, and the women playing and they're clapping their hands and then they're like calling out to other women and then they're flashing themselves (laughs) and so i was like it's just mardi gras (laughs) that's great that's funny yeah i didn't think i didn't even think about that but like even the types of boats like that it's the same kind of like barge like a lot of flat flat bottomed type construction but yeah that's funny the mardi gras on the on the mississippi it says there may be as many as seven hundred thousand men and women, but no children <laughs> gathered yeah. together here. <laughs> it's like that's probably a good thing. That was interesting. The no, the no children was tossed in there. Yeah, the mocking, the the mocking the people on the side was what I thought was that. That's what stuck out to me a little bit. It was like, was that just like you're not getting to go be part of this fun? Like it was just funny that they're just mocking people as they go down the down the river. Yeah, it's like you're missing out. Like we have the best party in town. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. And then you'd mentioned last time about something with, I think it was with the circumcisions, right? And mm-hmm. and how they must not have Herodotus must not have been around a lot of Jewish people, but even the their festival of lamps, um, mm. the burning lamps, seemed to me to hearken Hanukkah with the candles there because even says there's a sacred story which explains why this night is honored and associated with light i mean he doesn't tell what the sacred story is but i you know there must i don't know the time frame but i I keep thinking about did joseph teach like this must have been way before joseph right and that time i I should look that up now too yeah i looked at it last time in relation to homer i was trying to look at it and then isn't Herodotus? No, I can't remember when he when he was, but yeah, I th- that was I, I noticed that one too that there was a burning like the festival of lights kind of thing, and then on that same page, basically just a couple couple paragraphs down, um, he talks about 
Well, he says the Hellenes do this too, which I found interesting because that was not my understanding. But that the prohibition against um, intercourse in the temple, and then even if you had had it recently, like having to be uh, washed basically to go in, mm-hmm. that that struck me as a very um, Hebraic and then, you know, even traditionally like, you know, Christian custom as far as like when you might abstain from from intercourse, even with your even with your spouse. Um, but that's that abstaining part. But a lot of pagan practices include like temple prostitution, basically, mm-hmm. um, certainly by the time we get to the to the New Testament. And so I find it interesting that they prohibited it in um and again, they would have had that. They would have had some, some interaction with the Hebrews. I don't know. And I don't know how much that means anything other than it's interesting. Like, I don't have any evidence for connecting the two, but uh, I like their reasoning. I was like, well, the animals do it, so it must be okay. Oh yeah, yeah. The other people are like, if animals have sex in the temple, that's pretty funny. Alec, do you know offhand when 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 Herodotus is living? Sure, I guess I could. Are writing this? It's about. Um... 430 BC. Okay. Is when Herodotus is writing. So somebody's gonna have to look up when the Israelites were in Egypt, though. I don't know when that was. That's what I looked up last time. Herodotus versus Moses, like life uh span or like you know, time frame. Okay, so you're saying four hundreds BC. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Okay, so Moses would have been uh, roughly a thousand years before that, eight hundred to a thousand years before that, um, have it has him living between the late like thirteen ninety one to twelve seventy one BCE or eight BC. Um, yeah, that's really interesting because one thing that he notes when talking about the customs is well, one how close the Greeks are to the Egyptians. So they're using a lot of their religious customs or practices or influenced by them. Yeah. And even at one point, Herodotus says that the Egyptians invented geometry. Which yeah, I noticed that. The, it's funny. And then the footnote in the edition that we're using, the landmark, says that Herodotus is wrong, that Greeks invented geometry. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you got to expand that. You can't just put a little footnote that says... The guy who wrote this history and literally was there yeah, thousands yeah. of years ago is wrong. I just don't understand. <laughs> I, I noticed a couple of these same things. Like I'm like, okay, landmark guy. Like, I, like uh, I didn't. What notice was that. The, the the snake? It was like yeah, the sacred the, snakes. That's the one I. That's the one I noticed that like around thieves they uh there are sacred snakes which are not harmful to humans but small in size with two horns grown from the top of the head and it says they're um uh the horn viper it's probably what that is mm-hmm. but that and that he says they're they're buried in the sanctuary of Zeus because they're sacred to Zeus right and then it just says like the funny part is like on this on the side note it says thieves sacred snakes like it was just kind of like those are those side ones are like just kind of like markers in the story mm-hmm. for you and then the bottom one like an inch away from it, Herodotus must refer here to the horned viper, which is not known to have been sacred. Except it is known. He's the Herodotus. Right. Herodotus. Like, Apparently, okay, Herodotus is not evidence for anything right. historical. Right. It doesn't make any sense at all. Which was not known. Yeah. 
That's it's just, it was when he was talking about the cats. And he's like, these anecdotes are quite untrue, but there were no domestic cats in Greece in Herodotus's day. Oh, the anecdotes like about the jumping into the fire and stuff. Yeah, yeah. the cats jumping into the fire. And that, so that the is... females didn't want anything to do with the males after they had their kittens. So then the males come and eat, steal away the kittens so that and kill them, but they don't eat them so that the females will go back to them so they can have more kittens because that's what they really want is the offspring. Yeah. This is a good time to like remind ourselves of this, right? Like it's helpful to have notes sometimes. It's helpful to have context given to you, but you have to remember that someone put those notes in with with a certain view of how they're, uh, you know, approaching Herodotus. And in this case, it seems... Uh, not willing to treat Herodotus as a source text in in, in certain occasions, um, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting. Yeah, as if he's just making stuff up, right? Like this is historical fiction or something. Herodotus is just yeah, which is he's funny because he's like, not a real historian. He's just a making up right. stuff. <laughs> which is funny because he's like quote quote unquote the first historian, right? He's like right. actually trying to write things down as a historian, or at least as an anthropologist who's going and writing down the people's stories, what we would call an anthropologist now, right? Collecting these world stories. And no one else is even doing it. So what other source would he be looking for? Like some earlier source about the horned vipers or something, but there there wouldn't be one because he is the earliest source we know of as mm-hmm. this kind of historian. So it's just funny that we, I don't know, we have, we as in our society has this kind of uh, anachronistic historical bias about, you know, what we will and won't treat as a source text. So and he says often that he he hears multiple versions, right? And he tries right. to decipher. So it's not like he's he's either observing it or he's he's taking stories from multiple people. And in this section, it even comes before because he gets to a certain point where he's like, "This is the end of my own personal ops, like that I things I actually observed in Egypt. The rest of this is things that were told to me by priests or whoever." Mm-hmm. And that's this part's at least about the vipers is before that, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe he was actually at the temple in to Zeus and saw these all these skeletons of snakes that are piled up in there. You know, like that seems like it's a source text to me. <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. you know well, i kept thinking like we're so used to having google now and even before that it was always the encyclopedia right if you could look it up in the encyclopedia then it was true right but he- here he's having to actually go out in nature and observe things and talk to people and get their accounts and you know we do that in families too like oh this thing happened to me and it you know the fish story right how big big right. the fish get could be an exaggeration, but I don't know. I don't think you can discredit it. What's really funny, though, about all of this, like he makes these kind of comments about the horned vipers. But then when you get to the thing, which are clearly some kind of dragon, <laughs> the, the winged serpents. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't like he does. He just says winged serpents or snakes. See also like another section of the book three, like the next the book three. And I'm just That's like, what I thought. I'm like, you're just dragons? gonna, you're just gonna let that one go. Like, I guess, I guess maybe the landmark is just like, oh well, people who are reading my book wouldn't believe in dragons, so I don't have to really comment on that part. And I'm thinking, I want to know what's so special about these black ibises too. These all black ibises, and this sounds, yeah, this sounds like a really good, you know, thing that looked somewhat like a snake with bat wings. 
that would have given rise to the, all the mythical drag or whatever. But what do it's I? It's sort of a not necessary for this podcast at all. But <laughs> That's it's okay. funny to me that, like in recent history, we've had entire species of very unique-looking animals go extinct. Right. Right. Like the dodo bird or whatever, and we read about these creatures you know that existed thousands of years ago yeah and we just assume they're making them up right even though we've actually caused the extinction of entire species of animals yeah i just saw like you there's know. some some story was just reported like it's like the first time they've seen one of the they've like someone's actually seen one of these birds in like 30 years it's like indonesia or papua new guinea i can't remember it's some and it's like these weird birds that have like quill like like um, they almost have like porcupine quill type feathers and the people were like biologists or biologists were like all excited because it was like i don't know laying eggs or something i don't know but it was like they literally hadn't had evidence of like photographic or video evidence of one in like decades and so there was like this big story like like in the last couple of weeks big big in the big in the bird world i guess um and so you're like, yeah, it's like this little thing on this island. Like it's super rare. It's only lives in this one little area of the entire globe. And we haven't seen one in 30 years. But we're like, we're incredulous that there might have been something that could have fit the description of a dragon. And uh, I don't know, it was like a year or so ago. Someone, someone making the argument like, you know, if it if there was a thing that had wings and could fly, but like leopard leathery skin, like basically a dinosaur type thing it would have had to have had like to be able to fly it would have to have like avian type bones which are like pretty hollow and they don't they don't last they don't they're hard to fossilize like you know it's all these things it was just it was just kind of like this isn't that far outside the realm of scientific knowledge that this would be so so absurd but yeah and right. here they clearly are not like they're not calling them giant they're 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 defeated by ibises right so which is a that's a big bird but not like a not like a ridiculously big bird so anyway, I just thought that was funny that that one has no commentary, but then like uh, we don't have any evidence that these treat these snakes were treated as sacred, except for the evidence here presented by Herodotus. Yeah, yeah. So let's fun. pick on his terminology there. Yeah, it's funny. But I was I was going to say that kind of going back to the festival religious conversation that it's interesting how much the the Greeks, the Hellenes, and the Egyptians had customs that kind of fit perfectly with not fit perfectly that translated well into Christian practices and Jewish practices later on. Right. Like the Greeks and the Egyptians both live with one wife. He makes a point about mm. that, that that's unique, that they both live with one wife. Um, they both circumcise. That was unique to them. Uh, no, that the Greeks, the Greeks don't circumcise, but the, the Phoenicians and, and the Phoenicians Phoenician. who've been in connection with the yeah, Egyptians. Yeah, right. So these cultures that were closely tied to the Egyptians or had close relationships to them a thousand years after the Israelites were there. Um, it's just kind of interesting. I mean, it's it's obviously something Herodotus himself couldn't have commented on um, because it was so long before. But it is really interesting to to notice those connections. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of scholars and researchers have said, too, that uh, not, not just modern ones, but, but ancient ones as well, 
older one, the ancient to us, um, has said that that like Plato and Aristotle, mm-hmm. even Euclid, um, probably learned from the Egyptians and potentially even Israelite yeah. people. So came in contact with, yeah, Abra- yeah, 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 some of the Abrahamic religions. Um, so it's fascinating to think about reading um these histories from a a bit bird's eye an ibis's eye yeah. of history well and i think there's um pretty accepted understanding that uh, of um i think the spartans um being involved with the the israelites in the you know killing off various pagan clans, like the giant clans, whatever you want to call them, ba- you know, Baal worshippers, that kind of stuff. Um, as the Israelites, when the Israelites were going through in the Old Testament and conquering those lands, that that there was, there were at times Spartans fighting alongside of them for various reasons, I think has been pretty well established. So, I mean, there's certainly was some contact some, somewhere along the way. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that, but then he wouldn't have had some of that necessarily, all of that, those pieces, right, when he's doing this. Um, even like we talked about last time, he doesn't know how, where the Nile originates because he doesn't have access to the, like, no one has gone across and figured it out yet. Right. At least that he's in contact with. And then he keeps talking about the Egyptians being the first ones to like have temples for the gods and that kind of stuff. But he's just not aware of like the Sumerians and, you know, he, that, he, that that's kind of been lost to him to some extent too, that came previous, right? Who would have been in contact with the Abrahamic cultures themselves, but were, but were wiped out by, in large parts, by them in, in many cases? So, uh, yeah, you know, you have to accept. I don't know. For me, it's like I, I, I read it and I'm like, okay, so the, he's going as far back as he can, and he stops and tells you, I don't know anything past this, right? So for me, that makes me want to accept the rest of his account as much as I can on, on, on its face. Like, you know, if he says they were keeping these snakes sacred and he's there in Egypt, at, you know, 400, uh, BC, then I have a little bit more, I, I want to take that as being fairly credible. Um, so. Even the Phoenix story. <laughs> he didn't say, he say, he said he didn't see the Phoenix. So he said, he's just reporting. So he's, I think he's reporting something legitimate, and then you got to then you got to question what's that? What is that really? Ha- what's really happening there? Because is it something that didn't happen at all, or is it something that's you know is um, uh, uh, um, supernatural, right? Whether you know angelic, demonic, etc. That was seen and became and then becomes this story, right? You know, seen five hundred years ago by the Egyptians and they see it becomes this, it gets kind of made into this other story. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to me plausible. Like something like that could happen. Right. Um, Yeah. But he, it's funny that he keeps like, you you mentioned this the last time, Alec, you're like, wait, you didn't tell me what that, you said this thing. And then you didn't tell me what it was. Like, it's this great story. And then he goes that a couple of times in here, but especially ones that are um, seem to have to do with divinity or theology, like, He seems to be very careful that he's not writing something about divinity. Um, first, for whatever reason, he doesn't want to kind of cross that line. So I think that's kind of interesting that I didn't really pick up on in the first book 
or even the first part of this book until he said that something uh, specific in that like two point right at the uh, 2.65 area. He's uh, I would cross into the topic of divine. Oh, but if I should tell you why they are sacrosanct, I would cross into the topic of divine matters, which I am especially trying to avoid up to now. I only mentioned this subject when it was for, when I was forced to do so. And even then I merely touched on its surface. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. That he just very clearly says, I'm not getting into like divinity as much as, as much as I can avoid it. So it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting too. I mean, it's clear that, you know, he doesn't have perfect memory and knowledge of everything he sees, you know, like he was, when he was describing the hippopotamus, he describes it as having the mane of a horse and cloven feet like an ox. Well, mm-hmm. the hippopotamus doesn't have those features, at least not, what, 2,500 years later? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they did back then, I don't know. But say they look identical to the way they look today, it's okay, you know? I mean, he was visiting and saw the weirdest creature you've ever seen in your entire life, um, <laughs> right? Like, there's no none of those in Greece. So it makes sense to you remember it as best you can. You can't take pictures and you can't go back in time and Google it later to make sure that your memory matches what you saw. So there's obviously to some degree you can take it with a you can realize that he's can be incorrect. But I think to your point, Brandon, to dismiss anything that he says wholesale is sort of hubristic you know like mm-hmm. we i mean even like the phoenix one's interesting because we've had two thousand years now of mythology about the about the phoenix like he doesn't he doesn't say that the egyptians described it as completely in flames but that's how harry potter puts it right, Just, right. You know, depicts it on the screen so we're like of course phoenixes didn't didn't exist well yeah dummy of course they weren't balls of fire flo- flying around in the sky and apparently the Egyptians and Herodotus didn't think so either. Right. So, you know, is there... Was he describes there it, as having, he describes it having, as having reddish, red and gold feathers. Yeah. Like, but that, how you're imagining red and gold is kind of up to, you know, up to you, or that could be interpreted like flame color, you know, those kind of things. But Right. But also some version of a phoenix exists in lots of cultures across a pretty wide space including like all the way into far eastern china mm-hmm. so you know maybe don't be so dismissive right <laughs> well exactly that's the thing like we have so many cultures that have stories of phoenixes and dragons and you know those kinds of creatures and like I said, the dodo bird was a very, very weird looking bird. Um, the great, the ivory billed woodpecker was also a really big, strange looking bird. Mm-hmm. Both went extinct. We're now finding out that the ivory billed woodpecker might not be extinct anymore. So, what does that mean? You know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's like maybe these creatures existed and. They were killed off because you know interesting looking animals get killed off and they come back or they don't who knows well 500 years is a long time right right? that's more than one lifetime and so if it actually comes back every 500 then you would only know it as myth 
right? Mm-hmm. If... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we assume like uh I mean I think we forget there are are animals that have these really long lifespans too, right? Like like sea turtles and you know others that we know live really 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 long periods of time which you wouldn't expect from most other types of those species right like most turtle type animals don't don't make it across the road yeah turtles and tortoises don't live that long mostly yeah they don't get across the road they're not good at dodging things at all um but we know of a version of that type of animal that lives a really long time. And we know that of other sea animals too, right? Like the giant squids, they have like really long lifespans and stuff too. And so 500, maybe it's an exaggeration, but but having a bird that would have a long lifespan doesn't seem completely outside the, the, the possibility of even, you know, known science, science and biology. So. It's interesting what they, which, or the Egyptians seemed to hold most animals sacred, right? They didn't want to kill the animals, but then they, they did have some that would catch the crocodiles. I thought it was kind of neat how they would catch them. Described putting a pig on uh, a hook as bait (laughs) and cast it out in the middle of the river. And then the crocodile would climb up, eat the piglet or hear the piglets cry and then climb up and eat it. And they put mud because they said it had good vision i don't know if it really has a good vision but yeah so there were crocodile hunters first crocodile hunters that's right um not much change in the method by the way coming from a oh, land really? where, where people hunt alligators <laughs> still big hooks big hunks of raw meat and hope for the best <laughs> Do they still they, try to rub mud, mud on the eyes as fast no as they they've uh they've moved toward like shoot trying to shoot it in the head but it's like super hard but it has an impenetrable hide that's if you watch if you watch that show swamp people you'll see it on there it's (laughs) like they have to like pull it up to make it because they want even once it gets hooked it goes underwater and like they have to like get it to stick its head out of the water and they got to shoot it like their brains are really small they got to shoot like this one little space you hit it anywhere else it just keeps going because it's an alligator has thick skin doesn't care you know it's one of those I animals. It was they always... He said that it didn't have a tongue. It was one of the only animals that didn't have a tongue. I don't know if that's yeah. true, but I don't know if that's like, true either. It's weird. Yeah, that is strange. I did not know if that was true either. I feel like we can't know because he's he's probably right that even if it does, if you look at their mouth, it doesn't look like it has one. Yeah. Yeah. But it does have that bird that cleans its teeth. That's pretty cool. But embalming cats, I don't know. I always thought Egyptians were more cat people. But then they were describing, like, if a cat dies, they shave their eyebrows. If a dog dies, then they end up, like, shaving their whole body. But the cats get buried in a special city where the dogs don't. And they're, well, they, they have sacred tombs in their own cities. I guess dogs are more local, right? (laughs) Could take the cats away. Yeah, I thought the veneration of animals was sort of interesting. It sort of shows, I don't know, I don't want to be too pietistic about it, but he talks about the um, like intercourse in the temples and how the Egyptians and the Hellenes don't do that. Other cultures do that because they see the animals doing it. 
and they and in Harata says they don't think they think of humans as the same as animals. They're just animals. Humans are just animals. And I guess suggesting that Egyptians and Hellenes don't. They think of man as as a higher sort of creation. And I thought that was really interesting that the the peoples who thought of humans just as animals don't have as much respect for the created order. So they don't venerate animals as much as the ones who view man as sort of this higher thing. And that that led the Egyptians to also treat animals with great care and the Greeks too. And with scrupulosity, you know, having these sort of customs, which I was almost convicted by that realizing, you know, that even today, like Christian, they're called to take care of the natural order. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know if we need to be worshiping cats. I know we do not need to be worshiping cats. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We don't need to be worshiping cats and dogs and oxen and crocodiles or whatever. But we could still maybe learn something from the ancient Egyptians about taking care of the the natural world. It's kind kind of amazing. I think in what they ate and how they took care of themselves, like washing and talked about being healthiest, right? That every three days they would clean themselves out. So it seems like they do have that where they care about the body, but then it it just confused me when it came to what happens when you die, right? And talked about the three different ways that they embalm the body and whether you have more money or <laughs> less money. Um I don't know, maybe it's a, a way of preserving it, but they would, you know, clean out the whole body and then you're just left with skin and bones and you put that in a box. I loved the dinner custom. It says that the wealthier Egyptians do. Towards the end of the dinner party, they get a little st- wooden statue of a person mm-hmm. in a coffin and walk him around and say, this is what, drink up, this is what you're going to be at the end or something. Yeah, during the during the the festival where they're like purging for like weeks on end and stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was kind of a interesting, like uh, almost the Egyptian version of uh, Memento Mori, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was really interesting. The embalming stuff was kind of terrifying. I thought the middle class treatment was absolutely disgusting. Yeah, that's the grossest one. Yeah, like the upper class was like pretty thorough. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Like you could like, you're really cleaning that thing out, cleaning the body out. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the middle one was gross. Okay, yeah. I wouldn't want that job. Somebody. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> no, that's like, just oh sounds so much worse. I think I would just give people the, the expensive one just so to deal with the, the reality of the middle class one. I was like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Just get a little stopper. It's true, though. I mean, even there, though, like, it's really interesting how the Egyptians took care in, like, every element of their life and the world and found these kind of rituals and customs. And it's something we talk about in Christian circles, and I think especially in classical education, we're talking about this idea of, like, sacred space and sacred time and baptizing the culture and the community. And I mean, I want to be careful 
I'm not advocating for ancient Egyptian customs coming back into modern day America, <laughs> but I am saying that I'm kind of impressed by these people. Like how much care do we put into dead bodies? Right. You know, we throw them into a furnace and then put those ashes in a little vase and right. bury it. I mean, I must, you know, I'm not going to comment on our too much on that, but it just seems to me that we, if we're called to take dominion of the world and we're called to baptize our culture and our community, then we should be thinking very carefully about how we treat the world, animals, the dead, our time, yeah. the way we approach festivals and parties, drinking parties. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's kind of a memento mori, right? Like even at the dinner parties, they're finding ways to make that a sacred space and time. Like they're not just drinking, they're also remembering that they will die. I mean, how often do we remind ourselves at dinner parties that we're going to die? We don't. We act like we're going to live forever, you know? Um, it's just very interesting how much, yeah, I mean, I think we can spare our listeners the details. They can just read about the middle class approach to uh, <laughs> embalming but it's detailed man oh my goodness like there's so much ritual and details that they did um and it's just and even things like where Herodotus say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name this because it would be disrespectful mm -hmm. you know when he's talking about some of the religious customs and one that shows how deeply religious uh herodotus was uh but also the fact that just how how much they really did care about their religion and their customs. I mean, I'm, again, it is pagan, and there's something that's wrong with that. Uh, but you know, there's there's place for that, and even in our own faith, to to take it more seriously because um, we kind of treat everything like secular. Everything is, there's no such thing as something that's sacred, right? You know, we just do whatever we want. Even their first song was a dirge to Linus, the Linus song. That's not the Christmas one, right? The Linus Christmas song. No. Yeah. Although, you know, maybe, maybe close, uh, close cousins. Yeah, I think you're right, Alec, and it's, it's worth contemplating setting aside you know we don't need to worship animals and all these like but the care with which they address every aspect of life there's something to be said for that egypt egypt prospered for a very very long time and and a lot of what was there is in this time in, in her time is still there to some extent you know like the things they built and the and even some of that cultural stuff echoes forward through, um, you know, being conquered first by, uh, by 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 the Muslim Arabs and then by the British and by Napoleon and, you know, whoever else through history. A lot of that stuff has endured because it was done so caretakingly. And we have and the things we can verify, quote unquote, verify that Haraj talks about. We have because they kept good records and because they, you know, uh, they did a lot, preserve a lot of these things. And so there is something, I think, to be learned from that. That And, and Herodotus seems to, have, like you said, have reverence for the fact that they were the first for a lot of these things, that a lot of the things he seems to hold in high regard of his own people, of the Greeks, 
um, they, he, he says they got from the, the Egyptians. Um, and they, there seems to be this kind of almost like uh, wanting to emulate some of that as much as possible, like to be associated more with the kind of the way the Egyptians do things than the way maybe like some of the more barbaric peoples do things. Um, he's like wanting the Greeks to kind of be in the same conversation with the Egyptians, not with necessarily some other people groups. So I think there's, he recognizes and it's important for us to do so as well. Okay. I don't want us to get out of this section of the book though, without discussing um, the, well, we can discuss the, the, the talk about sisters or we, and we can discuss the, the, um, the part about Helen. Um, you know, if, if people know about the, Egyptian story of Helen, this is where they get it from, but I had never read it before. I just had heard it alluded to. So I find this account really interesting. Um, and as he compares it, uh, Herodotus himself compares what he's talking about to Homer's epics. Um, it's interesting that they call her foreign Aphrodite, first of all, which is, I thought was, was interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard this. I thought it was very interesting, his version of it. Um, and and his even proof, like he's going back to Homer and proof texting, like Homer knew this too, mm-hmm. that that Paris and Helen had gone to Egypt first before going back to Troy. This section made me very happy. <laughs> Why is that? Well, if anyone has kept up with Circe's ongoing uh, debate about Achilles versus Hector, this is a very, very pro Achilles approach to the story. See, my, I'm, I'm drinking out of my my team Achilles mug today. Yes, represent. It's because basically the way, I mean, Herodotus gives his account, which is that you know Alexandra's Paris and Helen sail down to Egypt after Paris seals her, and then the king there, Proteus says, well, we're going to keep Helen and the stuff that you stole because this was a great disgrace that you've committed against a, a host, Menelaus. And that's not something you do. And then Herodotus says that, and then Menelaus and the Greeks sail to Troy, confront them. They tell them, sorry, Helen's not here. She's down in Egypt. And the Greeks just don't believe it. And so then they siege Troy, destroy it find out they were right, they weren't lying, then they sail to Egypt and go and get Helen back. And Herodotus says, okay, now this makes sense to me that Helen would have been in Egypt because if she had been in Troy, in the landmark edition, it says it would have been demented for Priam to have kept Helen and not returned her. It would have been absolutely absurd for them to keep Helen and and risk their entire city and the lives of their children and citizens to protect a stolen wife. Yeah. Okay. So then he says, so I believe the story that Helen was down in, in, in Egypt, not in Troy. And that's, that's great. So setting that aside for a second, going back to Homer and reading his story, it's almost impossible to think that, like you have to be demented to think that Troy and the Trojan people were the sort of quote unquote good guys in this story. 
I'm joking, of course. I, I'm not. I'm not going to call you demented. Herodotus is calling you demented. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think Homer's being, uh, you know, poetic, right? So he's creating. There's more drama in Helen staying there and right. being a part of the story, and I think that that's that's perfectly appropriate. Um, but it definitely, I think, was an interesting perspective on it that we get Herodotus, who was a Greek at that time, giving us his consideration of Homer in the Iliad. Yeah. And this is what he, you know, his take on it was that it would have been ridiculous to not return Helen. And I've always said, I don't understand why Priam and Hector don't just give back Helen. So, but this isn't a podcast about Homer, so sorry. I just no, thought it's, that was really but interesting. It's, but it's relevant here, right? Because, yeah, I, that's a great question there. Um, and then I, I was always bothered by once he, once um, Paris loses to Menelaus. Well, he's about to lose and he gets swept away by his by his mom. Um, and like I, I'm like Hector, you should have, you should have made him. Like, he lost, right? Like that was the deal. It was single combat, winner take all. And it should have been like, you lost, it's over now. <laughs> Give Helen back, you lost. Even if, like, fine, your mom saved your life, but we lost. But they don't uphold the bargain, right? Um, which is always interesting to me. But yeah, because it's... You, you, the other issue you run into with is... Um, like... In Homer's version, well, he doesn't really say, right? It's it's kind of uncertain in the Iliad how willingly Helen went with Paris. And then she's there watching people die, and she doesn't decide to go to school back either, right? Um, but then he has to, he kind of has to write himself out of that in the Odyssey and give an explanation for like why it's okay that she's just now like why there's no consequence for Helen, right? Uh, if she ran off with Paris and stayed in, stayed in Troy for 10 years when she could have like snuck out and into the war um, or at least gone home. And he has to say that she was uh, in the Odyssey. What Homer tells us is that she was um, bewitched basically by the God, by, you know, one by the gods or the goddess, by, I guess it would have been Aphrodite um, to make good on the promise, right? That, that um that we learned about other places but so this is an interesting thing to throw in there like well maybe he had to write himself out of that because he wrote himself into it and she wasn't actually there right he, but he wanted a more dramatic story by having her there physically there um homer heard heard multiple versions and he went with the one he could you know make the most interesting in a in a, in a poem um or give the most drama uh and then there's I don't even know the source. Do you know, Alec, where um, someone says that the one that was in, there was one in Troy, but it wasn't the real one. She was like a, I forgot the, what the Greek word is for like a, you know, image of her. And the real one was all this time in Egypt um, being kept safe or something or swept off somewhere remember. else. I know, I know yeah. you're talking about that. I have heard that It's before. another one of the playwriters or something that has that version. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a good reminder for us too, right? That there's like Homer's is the most well-known version of, for obvious reasons. It's the epic. It's incredible. It's it's a 
it's one of the great works of literature ever. Um, but that all of the Greek stories have versions, like all of them. Every myth, every play, like they've all got versions. And the same thing's happening here, right? Like he's giving us multiple versions of these uh, Egyptian stories um, that, um, but he's giving them to us. And so as the historian, his role, it's different than Homer's, right? Homer's the poet. Homer's a, story, Homer's a storyteller, so he's got to pick a version and, and then tell that story. But Herodotus is a historian and he's got to give up, he wants to give us these other uh the other versions the other the other options and so i thought that was uh was really fun to read and and i and i like that he doesn't like trash homer he kind of like just gives it and is like you know i understand why he did what he did but this is why this makes more sense to me um as being the you know the quote-unquote real story and 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 that last little bit that we read that in the section we read uh, that very end of what 2.120 um this all took place and here i am declaring my own opinion because the divine force arranged matters so that the trojans by their total ruin and destruction would clearly demonstrate to all humans the fundamental truth that when great injustices are committed retribution from the gods is also great that at least is what i think and so he still gives us the same um lesson not lesson but you know the one of the lessons you can draw from Homer too, right? That you, that this understanding of the Greek culture and, and uh, hospitality and that that was broken. And that was, um, a huge, uh, no, no for Zeus and the Hellens. Um, and apparently for the Egyptians too, right. Um, that's what I thought was interesting that they picked up on that hospitality, right. They, yeah. they brought Alexandros in front of the King. He said he wanted to examine him, which, to me, it was at first I thought it was going to be like an Abraham and Sarah type thing. Mm. He, he tells him his whole lineage, and then it's like, okay, well, how'd you get Helen? And then he's like, oh, you know, and he's not forthcoming with <laughs> with the information. But he had this other other guys who had told him the whole story, and so I can't remember exactly. What, uh, he said, for you're clearly the most wicked of men, one who accepted hospitality and then committed the most impious outrage. You dallied with your host's wife, but that was not enough for you. No, after having given wings to her passion, you stole her away and sailed off. And even that did not satisfy you, for you also brought here a great deal of your host's property, which you had plundered. Yeah, I... I love that too. And I love that he almost displays it even further by saying that, but the Egyptians wouldn't kill him, right? Because that would be a violation of, of hospitality for someone who gets washed up on your shores against their will to then kill them, even if it's like to enact justice would be inhospitable. So, and so they, they keep the ill gotten goods, but then they release him and say, you need to go at least three days sailing away from here. Yeah. And if not, then we will treat you like an enemy. Like then we have the right to treat you like an enemy. So they uphold hospitality in their defense of hospitality, which I thought was just really fascinating. And clearly would have been important to Herodotus coming from the Greek culture that holds that such high regard. Then Menelaus, he didn't, uh, he didn't do so good when he came back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right. So then he gets stuck there longer. Yeah. He has his own punishments. Which yeah, I, I never could... picked up on that. Um, I think he mentioned the the parts in there 
Well, the drugs yeah, he, made sense to me then because I always wondered why Helen has these like oh right yeah sleeping drugs. I'm like, oh, well, if she got it from the Egyptians, then that that makes sense. So that part. But then Menelaus saying, the gods kept me in Egypt, though I yearned to come here, all because I neglected to offer them oxen, hundreds of oxen, because he decided to sacrifice two kids. But that, uh, yeah, never picked up on that. Yeah, I, that was the thing. You're right. I, I, I um, that's where I think Karaj is really doing his level best to harmonize Homer with the story he's getting from the Egyptians, right? And try and find where they cross over and what, and what, what the quote unquote, the truth is of what happened. And so um, I appreciate that about him. He's taking both sources and trying to his best to harmonize the information he's getting, um, which to me seems like the work of a historian or an anthropologist, right? That you're going to get multiple versions of a story. It happens today. If you were to go, well, I mean, look at the world we're in right now. If you were to go ask people, what happened between Israel and Hamas and what happened between Russia and Ukraine? You're going to get many versions and you're going to get many versions depending on which newspaper you read right now. So the, 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 the work of a real reporter or the work of a real historian or a real anthropologist is to try and harmonize the, the um, firsthand accounts you get and, and do the best with them as you can. So I like, I really appreciated that in here. Well, we have been going for a while and we've come to the end of this section. So uh, why don't we call it a day? Uh, we will pick up next time for everyone listening at home uh, with the the rest of uh, book two. So we will go from here, uh, which I think is two point, uh, what did I say? One, where did we leave off? 2.121, yeah, through the end um, and, and close out this uh, section on Herodotus book two. Um, so thank you both for being here. Thank you. Looking forward to finishing book two. <laughs> thank you all of you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this and other podcasts from Cersei, again, I'd encourage you to go uh, make a little donation during this holiday season at searcyinstitute.org backslash donate. You can email us at Cersei podcast. I'm sorry, at podcast at searcyinstitute.org. Be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. 